Welcome to the Global Treasures Podcast. I'm Abigail Vaca. And I'm Keith Berthium. We're two travelers with a passion for exploring world heritage sites. What makes the concept of world heritage sites so unique is the idea that these places belong to all people, no matter where they physically live. We'll spend each episode exploring the history, travel tips, and so much more. There are 1,199 sites across the world, with more being added every year. Throughout our journey, we're going to release episodes in the order by year the sites were originally added to the list, starting with the first ones in 1978. So with the introduction out of the way, let's dive in. In this episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to rock-hewn churches located in Lalibela in the western highlands of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a landlocked country on the continent of Africa. This site was added to the UNESCO World Heritage Site List in its first class of 12 sites in 1978. I was amazed at learning of this site. So you see, most buildings are built from the ground up using blocks of rock, steel, wood, you know, something like that. These churches, however, are special in that they were built from the top down. Yep, you heard me right. No bricks, no mortar, no concrete, no steel, no lumber. These churches were carved out of the rock from the top down. I can't imagine the planning and thought and the expertise that went into these churches. And there are 11 of them, connected by trenches and tunnels. They're simply beautiful to behold, and are also almost a thousand years old, and still contain mysteries surrounding their construction. The faithful of these churches say that the construction is no mystery, however. They were constructed by angels. Hold up, this is my job. So, I was going to mention the angels at the end, but since you brought them up, I'm going to cover the paranormal and urban legend stuff now instead of at the end. So, as Keith said, we don't know much about the origin story behind the churches being built. Some believe that the Knights Templar built them. And for those who aren't familiar with them, the Knights Templar were a Christian religious society that was founded in 1099. However, those who attend Mass at the churches today will tell you that King Lalibela was assisted by an army of angels who helped him build all 11 structures within 24 hours. I think that even today, however, even with steel chip chisels and diamond blades, this accomplishment would be remarkable if it was done by mere humans in only 24 years. Yeah, I completely agree. I just thought that this was interesting. Okay, so let's take a step back and start with a bit more of the geological slash history piece. The northern highlands of Ethiopia came into being 31 million years ago, when openings in the earth flooded the Horn of Africa with lava a mile deep. You can actually still see columns of lava frozen in time on the hillsides. Iron made the basalt red, and because gases are trapped inside, it made the stone light and pliable. By the year 400, Christians made their mark on Ethiopia, and they found that the soft stone made it easy to cut and shape it. So this site is a mountainous region of Ethiopia, in a town called Lalibela, which is on the eastern side of Africa towards the southern side of the Red Sea. The altitude of this area is very high, around 8,000 feet. The geology of the region drove the structures of the churches, and also the way that the water around the churches was handled. 
The majority of the church complex is made of two kinds of volcanic basalt. Abigail, nice job doing all that science. I'm usually the one to do that. That was cool. Okay, so imagine this. You're a king. You come across some solid rock in the ground and you think, look at that solid rock. What should I do? I bet there's a church down there somewhere. Let's dig it out. We don't have good tools. That's okay. We can do it. And then do it 10 more times. And then dig tunnels to each, catacombs, paths for the water to escape, cisterns, and then let's throw in some secret chambers for good measure. The building of these churches is attributed to King Lalibela of the Zagwe dynasty who actually set out to construct a new Jerusalem in the 12th century. This was a result of the Muslim conquest that halted Christian pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Lalibela flourished after the decline of the Aksum Empire, which was a powerful kingdom established in 150 BC and was a major power on the trade route between Rome and India. It was considered one of the four great powers of the 3rd century. This site remains in use by the Ethiopian Orthodox Christian Church to this day, and it is an important pilgrimage for worshippers. It's estimated that it took roughly 24 years to build all 11 churches. It's also thought that it's more likely that the church has evolved into the current form over the course of many phases of construction. And there are two main groups of churches. So there are five to the north of the River Jordan and five to the south of the river. Each of the groupings has tunnels and trenches that connect to them. What about the final church? Is that isolated from the others? Yes, but it's also connected to the two main groups by a series of trenches. So what is unique about these churches is that they were hewn from the rock in monolithic blocks, which actually means they were formed from a single large block of stone. This type of construction is called subtractive, where space is created by actually removing a material. Unlike in built construction, where the last part constructed is the top, the method of construction leaves the most recent hewn part at the bottom. So to avoid flooding from underground rivers and water tables, the builders also had to excavate drainage canals and trenches. The roofs of each church, which is kind of cool, are at the same angle from the rocks that they were originally carved from. This actually also helps drainage. These hydraulic systems filled cisterns and baptismal pools as well. These single blocks that were carved out were then further chiseled out, forming things like doors, windows, columns, floors, and roofs. Of the 11 churches, four are monolithic, which as mentioned before means that they were freestanding, and the other seven share a wall with the mountain from which they were carved. Adding to the complexity of this was the fact that the builders added extensive systems of drainage ditches for water, trenches, and ceremonial passages, some with openings to small caves and catacombs. And the churches are a couple of different shapes, square, rectangular, basilical, or cruciform. What's basilical? Yeah, I should have explained that. That's an old Roman word that means a rectangular building with an open hall extending end to end, and usually has an aisle or two set off to the side. Most basilical-style churches have a raised platform at one or maybe even both ends. Except in a few places where geological features forced changes, the churches follow normal Orthodox custom of placing a door at each of the western, northern, and southern sides. Steps and pedestals lead you upwards into the churches. The doors and windows of each of the churches are of multiple types throughout, and some are directly descended from the architecture of the Aksumite Empire. So the rug-covered floors of the churches are rough and are higher or lower in height to represent different sacred zones. 
There are bracketed pillars to support flat ceilings, barrel-style vaults and domes, and there are even partially carved elements that show that some construction was abandoned. Many of the buildings have blind or open axumatite-style windows in the upper areas. Biet de Mariam has an exterior frieze of horsemen that have been interpreted as saints or King Lalibela himself. So a frieze is a term used to describe a horizontal band of carving running along the top of a wall, inside or outside a building. By the way, did you hear my friend was arrested for carving equations into blocks of quartz? Oh good, another joke. Yeah, he was arrested for the manufacture of crystal math. <laughs> okay, I gotta give it to you, that's a good one. So all these churches were made using basic tools of hammers and chisels to evacuate trenches surrounding the monolithic and semi-monolithic buildings, as well as the system of tunnels that connected the separate groups of churches. The construction was done from top to bottom. The first Europeans didn't lay eyes on these churches until the 1520s, when Portuguese explorer Pero da Cavilla and priest Francisco Alvarez visited them. They were simply amazed by these churches, and Alvarez wrote, I weary of writing more about these buildings, because it seems to me that I shall not be believed if I write more. So while a few more visitors came in the next couple of years, no other Europeans came for another 300 years. So one mystery that I came across is this. The amount of material that must have been removed to make these churches must have been immense. Interestingly enough, however, no one that I came across in my research has found traces of this debris. That is a mystery that hasn't been answered yet. The churches are each unique, which gives the whole site a diversity of architecture. Inside one of the churches, Bet Gogalta, there are human figures of bas relief. In Bet Mariam, there are colorful paintings of geometrical designs and biblical scenes. One of the churches, Bete Modani Alem, which means House of the Savior of the World, is thought to be the largest monolithic church in the entire world. Bete Georgis, or House of St. George, has a remarkable shape of a cross. Speaking of which, Abigail, do you know where Solomon's temple was located? You're on a roll. It was obviously on the side of his head. Ugh. <laughs> All right, that'll be my last dumb joke for this whole episode. I thought it was interesting that while most of these were probably used as churches from the beginning, a few may have been royal residences. Several of the churches are even decorated with mural paintings. That's right. These churches have been the focus of pilgrimage for Coptic Christians since the 12th century and hold significant religious meaning. Two important festivals are held here, Timcat and Gena. Timcat is the Orthodox Christmas, held every January 7th per the Gregorian calendar. Exactly right. This festival brings pilgrims from all around the province in which the participants enjoy three days of singing, dancing, and festivities around the Church of St. George. The churches are also home to clergy, and each year brings more and more religious leaders together. I'd also add, I think part of the allure of these churches is Lalibela itself, which is famous for its two-story, round houses that are built out of the distinct local redstone, I highly recommend Googling a photo if you're curious. They're really pretty. Okay, and for my last fun fact, these aren't the only rock-hewn churches in Ethiopia. The Tigray region is home to more, a lot more, around 150 of them. That's incredible. So now that we've covered the history, let's cover some travel tips for people who want to visit rock-hewn churches. And you know, the longer we do this podcast 
the more I'm discovering that it's pretty difficult to get to some of these sites. So in order to get to Rockhune churches, you have to fly from Addis Ababa to Lalabella's airport, which is only about an hour-long flight. From there, you can catch a tour. I would suggest going through a vetted site like Viator or TripAdvisor to make sure you have a guide in your native language and that you have a comfortable, air-conditioned bus. The primary languages spoken in Ethiopia are Amharic and Somali. English is not commonly spoken in the more rural areas. Plus, the tour would take care of booking the tickets for the actual site, etc. So, you can choose to book everything separately yourself by buying a ticket from the ticket office in town. If you do, be sure you have your passport with you. It seems like this process can be a bit chaotic, though, as there doesn't seem to be a website where you can purchase tickets ahead. I wouldn't want to fly to Ethiopia and get there just to find out there aren't any tickets available. And again, there are lots of tours catering to backpackers, too, if that's your jam. Know that no matter how you choose to book your trip, there's going to be a lot of walking involved. Also, tours aren't cheap, and even just visiting the church independently is a steep cost. Yeah, some of the tours I saw were a few thousand dollars, though they were a week long and went to other sites as well. So Abigail, did you find any stats in your research on roughly how many people visit this site every year? Yeah, I did. Upwards of 100,000 people visit annually from around the world. Wow. Given that it's in the middle of nowhere, that's pretty impressive. Um, Are they open 24-7? No, it doesn't appear to be. It looks like it's open most of the day, Monday through Sunday, with a midday break. So I'm not sure if that's a lunch break for staff or what have you. So two questions come to mind. Are there like hotels you can stay at? And when is the best time of the year to go? So in terms of weather, the best time of the year to visit is dry season, which is from October to March. Otherwise, you can expect quite a bit of rain. During the winter, average temperatures are between the low 50s to 70s in the afternoon, and then in the summer, temperatures are low 60s in the morning to high 70s Fahrenheit. In terms of the best days to visit, it depends on how much excitement you're looking for. Saturdays seem to be pretty popular because there's a weekly market nearby. I watched some videos online, and it seems to be a mass of people, vendors selling things, and animals running around. So unless you want to go there specifically, it might be better to plan to visit other days of the week. In terms of where to stay, I saw a good number of lodges and hotels in the area, with breakfast included, but no chain hotels. So I'm sure you knew I was going to ask this, but speaking of breakfast, are there any food specialties worth trying while you're there? A couple provincial food items come to mind, and that includes kitfo, which is a delicacy. I think it's almost like a steak tartare, so it's served rare or raw with spices like cloves and chili peppers. And then there's injera, which is commonly served with many dishes as well, It's a kind of flatbread made from teff flour. So for this site, I want to transition to talking about some safety-related things too. So what do you suggest? Okay, so not the fun stuff, but important stuff. Vaccines. I highly recommend you talking to your doctor about potentially getting the yellow fever vaccine. 
malaria, and hepatitis, as they're all recommended if you'll be visiting. I highly recommend you bring bug spray as well to prevent any mosquito-borne disease. And then, of course, bring some bottled water because contaminated water could pose an issue. Also, when you're out and about, make sure you keep an ID on you at all times as well. So about 17,000 people reside in this area. And as we've stated, Ethiopian Christianity is the biggest religion represented, with Islam being the second largest. If you enter a church or mosque, just be prepared to cover your head or hair with a scarf. Okay, great tips. So I want to wrap up today by talking about some issues and challenges that are faced trying to preserve Rakhine churches. I've seen articles and features in the news about this area recently. Interesting. I haven't, but I'm not surprised. So there have been a host of issues in trying to keep the building safe. First of all, there has been quite a bit of civil unrest and armed conflict in Ethiopia in general. But this region specifically has had a six-month state of emergency due to increasing violence as of this recording. This has made accessing the site to do repairs due to roadblocks and curfews very difficult. The World Monuments Funds and UNESCO have been working together over the years to help preserve this site by procuring grants to find permanent solutions. So what they had done originally was create some temporary structures to safeguard the churches from damaging rainwater, but they were only able to do so for four of the 11 churches. Beta Gabriel Raphael and the twin churches Beta Gogoltha and Mikhail had waterproof layers added to the roof and other structural repairs were put into place. They also have been working to train local craftspeople to be able to do this work independently and how to use the proper materials moving forward. Again, this site is completely out in the open, so they're going to need a strong management plan to ensure rock-hewn churches are protected for future generations to enjoy moving forward. Still, I feel very encouraged by the big steps they've made over the last 15 years. Well, so this was fun. Researching this site was amazing. I didn't know anything about this before we looked into it. So, a quick plug about our podcast. Reviews are powerful. If you've been enjoying this podcast, reviews can help us show up in search engines and allow for more people to find this podcast, which in turn helps us create more content. If you have the time, please leave a review. We would appreciate it greatly. Especially if it's a five-star. Hint, hint. So thank you for listening to the Global Treasures Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check us out on Facebook and TikTok. See you next time.